the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Today on Soundtrack Alley, Eric Woods and I are looking at the classic 1979 horror sci-fi movie, Alien. We'll discuss a little bit about the movie and a lot about the score and its changes, Jerry Goldsmith's rewriting of the score, and so much more. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show as it begins now. Welcome. I am your host, Randy Andrews, and of course, Eric Woods is with me today. Eric, when was your first time that you saw Alien? You know, I've had um, I've had a lot of time to think about this, and I don't remember. <laughs> um, but I thank God I wrote down some notes because now I do. Um, I, I the first time I saw it was most likely like on a Saturday afternoon. And, um, I think I mentioned on previous broadcasts that, uh, you know, living in Southern Ontario, we would get the, the Buffalo stations. And so, uh, one of the stations, uh, which eventually became a Fox affiliate, um, used to play like Sunday afternoon movies. And so I had experience of a ton of films that way. Um, alien was, was one of them. Um, and what's interesting about this is that I saw alien after aliens so I was about maybe, I mean, I was 10 or 11 when I saw Aliens. So, and I saw that when it actually premiered on television. So I saw the extended cut of Aliens. Um, that's a whole other story. Um, but that experience really was quite profound. It scared the living daylights out of me and I had nightmares forever. Um, but um, I was much later into my maybe mid to late teens when I saw Alien. And having seen aliens, you can almost, you might think that maybe I wouldn't get into alien because of the slow pace. There weren't guns or explosions, but I really enjoyed alien. Um, you know, the image of the alien at the end of the film kind of being charred by the rocket engines, just, 
it's an image that stayed with me forever. And I remember only seeing that film once at that time. And I was, and you know, you, you'd kind of like rack your brain as to, man, I have this image of this and where is that from? And then finally you see the film, you know, later on and you're like, oh yeah, right. I, I remember that. And that just image just stayed with me forever. That, that incredible shot of the, you know, the rockets powering up in the alien getting roasted. Um, so, and you know, around the time I, I wasn't really a soundtrack fan either. So I didn't know what to think of the score and the needle drops and, and, uh, the use of classical music. So I was pretty much watching this movie oblivious to any of the tinkering, uh, like probably the majority of the people who, uh, who saw the movie or people who are older or more um, educated in, in the use of, of film music in, in film. So at the time I had no idea what was going on. I was just enjoying the experience and I mm-hmm. really loved it. Yeah. You know, for me, um, it was a long time before I saw alien. Uh, it skipped my radar for quite a few years. And finally, after buckling down, I finally watched it and was so impressed with how good the film was and how uh, how scary it really was for me. Like, first-time jumps and first-time scares. And how even now, like, I watched it probably a week ago, and it still holds up. Indeed. It, it doesn't matter if it's a 1979 film. It still holds up today, even though the technology is dated in the film. But, oh my goodness, Jerry Goldsmith, I mean, he... See, I didn't... I wasn't too big of a fan of film music at that time either when I saw it. And I was probably... Oh, I don't know. I, it, Like I said, it skipped my radar for quite a few years. So... I was probably in my 20s when I mm-hmm. saw it. And it just, it was an amazing movie. And I really was impressed with it. And then when I finally watched the director's cut, I got to see some unique things that I hadn't seen with the original. And I was like, oh, wow, this movie is really fascinating. And, um, yeah, I I I love that that film. It, it's just it's an amazing piece of horror. It's an amazing piece of sci-fi. Um and every time it's on, I've got to watch it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, it is one of those movies where it's like no matter where you are, you're going to stop and and just pick it up and just watch it right to the end. Yeah. So, um one thing that that gets me is that when I thought of Jerry Goldsmith when he originally did this movie, the the movies that I was thinking of with Jerry Goldsmith was like Damnation Alley and Planet of the Apes and Logan's Run and The Twilight Zone. Um, those were films that really stuck out to me, especially Planet of the Apes because of the the weirdness and strangeness of the score. And to me, it at first, it didn't really bother me that there was so little music in the film. Um, now, when I watch it again, I'm like, eh, they could have put a little bit 
different music in there to, I mean, to create a bit of better mood for the film. But I think for the most part, it, it stayed true to keeping like the jump scares where they needed to be. Yeah. I think what, um, what they did right was, was really concentrate on the sound design mm-hmm. of the picture. And I mean, you say that now you're like, oh, well, you know, like that's what scores are sounding like. They sound like sound design and, and you know, it, sound is so loud and it's drowning out the, the movie score. But I think in this instance, uh, what was key to this film was to keep the music at a minimum, mm-hmm. have it create the atmosphere. And I mean, not just create any old boring atmosphere, but, you know, write something interesting. But yeah. that was also going to complement the the sounds in the movie as well, which were incredibly unique. I mean, we all talk about Star Wars and what Ben Burt did and, and the sounds that he created in that film. But I would also point you to Alien because the, there was a lot of, um, I mean, every single sound sounded eerie. And it did sound like, I mean, you know how you have sounds for like a old-fashioned haunted house in a haunted house movie, right? Creaky doors and, and creaky floors. But it was all of the technological sounds um, yes. in this that just, there was something about how precise they were, how well recorded they were, and how well they were used. Um, I mean, there's one portion where I'm pretty sure it's like Ripley's running around the the ship um, trying to either shut down Mother from uh, d- destroying the Nostromo. And there's no music, but it's just this this sound of a, of a wailing siren and um, uh, exhaust and, 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 and that's it. And it's, and it's just as, as terrifying and tense as if you would have original score there. And I, and I kind of, I really do appreciate, I mean, there's some films that, yeah, you know, wall to wall scoring. I'm actually okay with some of the films that are like that, but then there's some films where man, the music has to come in at the right time. And even though, the score was chopped up completely besides one cue. I think the use of music and I'm again, I'm not giving any credit to what they did with Goldsmith score, but how they used it and where they used it was, I think was pretty much perfect. And, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the atmosphere, the sound effects made you feel one way. And then bringing in the music just increased that, that tension. And I just, I mean, every, I love the sound of the sliding doors and how like, you know, if you, when they go into um, like specific rooms, it's almost as if it's just dead silent and you're just hearing these low sounds of a door opening and closing. And when it shuts, it's almost like an airtight sound and it's really eerie that way. I think the sound in this movie is simply magnificent. Oh yeah. And I think that's what makes it kind of a masterpiece in filming because the sound design was so good and it didn't necessarily mean that it was regarding the score but it was the sound of the different sounds of the movie um even getting into the alien sounds the egg the um, like looking at the egg for the first time you can hear it you can hear the scraping alongside the the egg of the outside and then instantly like the face hugger 
you know, grabbing hold of John Hurt and like melting his helmet. And you could hear the hiss or the, it was almost like acid that it had fused with his helmet. And it just, it was really effective for the sound. And I thought one of the things that just really got me about this movie was that we hadn't really gotten a major female hero in a long time in film. And here we are, here we are with Sigourney Weaver as our cut to the action hero for a woman. And you think that it's going to be some guy that's going to be the action hero of the film. And it's Ripley. And she's the one that holds the action. And it's just unforgettable. Yeah, and, that's, and I think that's what is the biggest surprise of this film. And it's really a, a, a ballsy um, move on the filmmaker's part. Because, like as you said... This could easily have been, you know, Tom Skerritt's movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm pretty sure, I mean, based on the strength of, of Dallas, um, that he was going to be the one that was going to, that was going to make it. But his death halfway through the film then just throws you a major curveball. And, and you're really left with some of the quote unquote weaker characters, uh, besides Ripley, who is portrayed as very smart. Um, very confident, even though she seems quite brand new to all of this. Um, and again, I'm not sure whether it was explained whether how many trips that everybody had been on, but everybody else seemed a little bit more, uh, seasoned, maybe with the exception of, uh, uh, Veronica Cartwright's character, but Sigourney Weaver or Ripley at that point, um, she had her head screwed on. She knew what was going on. She was asking all the right questions. She was doing all the right things. And having her be the one that survives when you go back and re-examine the movie, it it seems like the most logical decision. But she is not a typical action hero. And she's not necessarily portrayed that way in Aliens as well, even though that's a high-octane action film. Um, she's just smart. She wants to get off that ship and... And she's trying to figure it out on the go, just like everybody else is. But she's the one that really is leading the charge and making sure that everybody is, um, or at least she's trying to make sure that everybody else is going to be safe and nobody else is going to die. She's probably the smartest character out of them all. And again, I, I really appreciate that aspect of the movie. Um, because Veronica Cartwright comes off as like what you maybe expect of a of a female character in a in a in a film of the sort, right? She was very whiny in this movie, but very much so. In, except in one scene where she actually smacked Ripley, like it it was in the director's cut because it wasn't in the original cut, but it was quite funny because Ridley Scott wanted Veronica Cartwright just he's like go ahead just. Don't hold back, really hit her. And so it emphasized the actual real shocked reaction of Sigourney Weaver, of Yafet Kodo, and 
Harry Dean Stanton because they did not expect it. And I found that hilarious. And I can't remember what that whole, what was the conversation about and why did that happen? It was about quarantine. Huh. Because really, Ripley really was. odd. Yeah, well, she was right. Well, Ripley was really mad that yes. they broke quarantine. And Veronica Cartwright's character, I can't remember what her name was. Uh, Dallas? No. No. Lambert. Was, uh, Lambert. It right, was Lambert. Right. And the thing about it was that, you know, she was complaining that they're like, oh, we need to bring him in and we need to bring him in. And she was all whining about so that. So wait, so was, so, but it was it Ripley that smacked her, right? No, it was Lambert that smacked Ripley. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> at all. Yeah. You know, cause I thought that, you know, that, that, uh, Lambert be the one that you'd want to slug. Yeah, but see, um, I think the reason why Lambert was upset also was because, you know, she didn't want uh, John Hurt's character to die. And she thought that Ripley was being callous and against all feeling. And it's like, that wasn't the case at all. She was trying to keep quarantine. But, uh, yeah, I thought that was... (laughs) It was in retaliation because of Ripley's refusal to let them in. Interesting, yeah, because I would never have thought that Lambert would have done that at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think and it that, was just, you know, like a m- mad, aggressive, one-shot hit. And that's probably why they cut it. Yeah, because it, it, yeah, it, it wasn't fit. true. It wasn't true to Ripley's character either. Right. Because, like, Ripley wouldn't let somebody hit her. <laughs> well, exactly, right? Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I mean, that's just, yeah, it just wouldn't have happened. But one thing that I, I thought that was interesting was that this movie had a hard time actually getting made because of the violence and the blood factor. And the, honestly, when you watch the movie, there's not that much blood in I mean, it's not really that bloody. There's right. There's one scene... Yeah. That's bloody. And we can talk about that. And that's the chest buster scene. Mm-hmm. You know, that, of all the scenes. For me. <laughs> really? That was ru- well, because oh, I saw aliens. Yeah, of course. Right? Well, and then not only that, but you also saw Spaceballs. I, you know what? And I did. And, I did and, I, <laughs> and I'm trying to think of what, whether I saw Spaceballs first because it didn't make any sense to me. Right? Yeah. I, I, I'm trying yeah. to think of which one I saw first. I was in grade six when I saw Spaceballs, so I'm trying to think of how old I was. Uh, how old are you in grade six? Um, um maybe thirteen. No, no. no. So maybe. my daughter's my daughter's eleven. So, so in and around yeah. that time, um, I probably saw Spaceballs and Aliens. So I think I saw Spaceballs first because that made no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were laughing when they saw that joke, but. Yeah. Um, but but it, not that it's not as impactful. It's still uh, it's still one of the most terrifying things I, I think I've it is. ever seen. And I thought it was a really interesting thing that, you know, they used a dummy, but they had to do so much because John Hurt had to still be there. He had to be positioned in a certain way to where you have the dummy there, and it was only part of the body, and it was... I thought it was a really impressive 
way of filming it because it looked real. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely it looked, it you know, so terrifying and no music. It was dead silence and just the noises. And it was gross. <laughs> oh, and I, and I completely agree. It's, um, yeah, it is, it is shocking. Mm-hmm. I think the most brilliant though aspect of that is the way they introduced it. Um, because yes. you think that they are uh, in the clear, we still don't know what the face huggers do. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the face huggers now off his face, we're all thinking that those are the aliens. Yeah. Right. And, and, and little do you know that that's just part of it, part mm-hmm. of the experience. And I just love the fact that they're all goofing around they're having fun around the table. It's their last meal before quarantine, mm-hmm. um, or not quarantine, um, uh, hypersleep, hypersleep. And, and I'm, and I'm trying to th- correct me if I'm wrong, but is Ash kind of just monitoring things? Like he's, he's kind of he, twitching actually. Well, and that's a whole other thing with Ash. And I, and again, yeah. you don't pick that up until you see the movie, a couple of more times, but times, I just love yeah. the fact that it's just, you think they're in the clear and then you're like, well, now what, right? Is that thing really dead out in the, in the med lab? You know, mm-hmm. where are the aliens? And then this happens and it's, mm-hmm. it is beyond, beyond shocking. And it, it feels so real. And I think mm-hmm. everybody um, contributed to that scene. Not only, yeah. um, uh, my apologies. Um, not only uh, John Hurt, um, but Kane. like all the other people right. in the room, the reactions because just the, sh- the reactions were pure. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and I, I think that's what's so, and it just, and that's what's so great about this movie as a whole. Everything mm-hmm. feels real. Everything feels like you know, even the ship is kind of like old and and used and worn, and mm-hmm. it just everything feels lived in, weathered. Um, weathered and it just <laughs> they i they nailed it absolutely perfectly i think mm-hmm. yeah so you know with that in mind and with how the the ship was and how everything was let's talk about the score cuz <laughs> there's a lot that we need to discuss about this yeah. because for one one thing, when we were first talking about doing the show for Alien, uh, I didn't realize Jerry Goldsmith did three scores for it. Um, or three wrote, versions. Well, he wrote one. Yeah. Then he had to rewrite a pile of cues, and I think he did that over the course of seven days because he couldn't do it right away because um, Maurice Jarre was recording a score um, in the same studio and so it was about seven to ten days later goldsmith had to come back and rewrite a a handful of of alternate um takes and i think it's i think it's roughly six or seven of them Mm -hmm. and um which you know we'll go into more detail about why why this was done and um but yeah he and then and then when you listen to you know the score as a whole even those tracks are all mashed up and some of it's used, some of it they isn't. Are. And yeah. it's, it's an insane 
thing that happened to Goldsmith in the same way of of going about crafting a score and, and using it. But it's it's something that it's kind of like an everyday occurrence now in in Hollywood. You know, mm-hmm. it's happened to the to the best of the best. It's happened to Goldsmith, John Williams. Um, it happened to him on the the prequels. And, mm-hmm. and in other movies as well, even like Steven Spielberg, his buddy who absolutely loves his music, chewed up his score to the Lost World. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, it happens. But the way that this was done, um, the biggest the biggest thing, the biggest problem that they had was the lack of communication. Oh, yeah, totally. And of course, a an editor who was just, you know, putting his thumb into everything. Yeah, we need to talk about that elephant in the room. Which the the editor? Yes. Well, yeah, Terry Terry Rawlings is the editor and mm-hmm. he I think thought he knew better than Jerry Goldsmith and him And that's so weird because Jerry Goldsmith was the composer and right. Terry Rawlings was not. Well, and Terry Rawlings, well, Let's just, I mean, we can go back just a bit. I mean, when I talk about the communication issues and the reason I say that, and and Jerry Goldsmith was the one that I think that really brought this up saying, you know, I had an idea, they hadn't, they had an idea, but they couldn't communicate that idea to him. And Ridley Scott being a second time, you know, filmmaker, I mean, he worked in commercials and whatnot, but I mean, his first film was The Duelist, which was successful, but um, Scott really didn't know um, what he wanted out of his score for, for alien. And, and you can tell because of all the trouble with the rewrites and the alternate takes and the unused material and that sort of stuff. So, you know, Scott and Goldsmith definitely not clicking and that's a big, big problem. Um, so they did agree on, on the atmosphere that the film needed from, from the music. But the problem is Goldsmith had a romantic, view of space there was something he had said in regard to space he thought of it as romantic mysterious and longing or something right and and that's not a bad way of thinking about it but when you have a director who obviously didn't want that and can't communicate that he didn't want that um then you are you're going to have issues you again Again, we're going to have communication problems and Goldsmith's going to go and write off, write the score that he thinks is appropriate and then bring it back. And Scott and Terry Rawlings eventually, uh, Terry Rowling, uh, Rowling will eventually go, well, what is this? So, um, the, yeah, the, that's, that's, that, that's the biggest problem. And, and even though I think Goldsmith would say that this is probably one of his best scores that he ever wrote. It turned into an absolutely miserable experience for him, and and it's I don't understand why. Um, You know, Goldsmith was given nothing, absolutely nothing, and he was also given a false hope that what he was writing and recording was going to be fine because there literally was no notes during the recording session. They just recorded everything, everything was okay, and then they put it up against the movie. And so now you're bringing in a guy, the editor, Terry Rawling, who worked, um, was his sound editor and music editor on The Duelist for Scott. Yeah. But yeah. all of a sudden he's promoted to the film editor. And that brings a whole bunch of other problems because now Rawling is the one that's almost dictating 
what's going to happen musically, not just with sound and not just in the edit, but now musically because he came armed with a temp track and he thought that he could. Oh, and it wasn't just any temp track. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It was all Goldsmith, (laughs) which is, which is seriously one of the absolutely dumbest things that any filmmaker can, can make. Like, I mean, here's, here's my lesson for the day. (laughs) And for all of you music editors and film editors out there, and you got a composer that you've hired and you know, he's going to write the score. So let's say it's John Williams, even though it'll never be John Williams. Let's say it's John Williams or let's say it's Jerry Goldsmith. Can't be Jerry Goldsmith. Let's say it's Alan Silvestri. And you have now made a film and you're like, hey, I'm going to be really smart. I'm going to tempt the whole movie with Alan Silvestri music. No composer likes that. None of them. None of them. It's not a compliment. It just adds to the confusion because I can recall a quote from Bruce Broughton where he was on Tombstone and he came in late. Um, He had about two weeks to write that score and record it and get it off. And everything was tempt with Silverado. And his line was, hey, man, that music is great, but it's all wrong for this film. And he's not wrong because Silverado, that music is written for Silverado. He's got to do a completely different thing for Tombstone. And just because he wrote a, a Western score doesn't mean that that Western score is going to work in the new Western score. And so, you know, all Goldsmith is doing is looking at this going, well, yeah, I mean, that, that music is great, but. I mean, I can't compete against myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, let me just write what I'm going to write. So what was yeah. actually very funny, and I had said this earlier, Goldsmith said, forget the temp score. I'm just going to write what I want to write. And again, that just adds to to confusion, miscommunication, and and all the problems that were then going to happen after the first set of recording sessions. And it it, it took from one thing to another in Rawling and Scott added score to the picture and, you know, Goldsmith was asked to rewrite five cues, including the main title, uh, because for some reason, I mean, Ridley Scott thought that the opening title didn't need to be romantic, uh, which, I mean... I could see it because, like, the the beginning title is very quiet. And it's very ominous. Um, So you're not getting um, a romantic score. But when you get the the cue for hypersleep, that's a very romantic cue. But that doesn't happen for at least 10 minutes into the movie because you have the sounds of the ship, you have the view of the ship from outside, and you're getting kind of a scope of the film, you know? And you finally get, like, parts of these romantic notions that Goldsmith had, and, I mean, it worked for that scene, right? Yeah, so this is the kind of the main reason why I... I... I kind of brought this idea to you about talking to alien. Cause I really, really wanted to talk about specifically these two cues, but then the, the rest of the score, because I honestly do think, I mean, for all the complaining that I've been doing with about Terry Rowling and, and, and Ridley Scott, honestly, I think the decision to have Jerry Goldsmith rewrite these two cues, 
was the right decision. Um, and what's so great about the the Blu-ray of this movie is that you're able to experience what Goldsmith originally wrote and or watch the film as it was edited and, and, and shown theatrically. So in the main title, as beautiful as it is, seeing the scene back to back with the two different approaches, um, you know, so Goldsmith's original main melody, and as you said, very romantic. And I think the big romantic aspect of it is that alien main theme played on the, the solo trumpet. And um, what I think that Goldsmith's idea here was to pretty much throw the audience off when the truly shocking stuff started to happen. So while I understand that reasoning, um, that original cue that Goldsmith wrote, as beautiful as it is, I don't think personally worked with the images or the atmosphere I think that the film needed right off the bat. Um, For me... I felt that it had to be mysterious, it had to be ominous. I mean, and that seems oh, yeah. rather obvious, right? Yeah, it is. And and I completely agree with you on that because otherwise you don't have a horror film. Right. And so when you have this romantic melody over top of it, you're like, what in the world? I think it goes against the images. And I and again, I know that's kind of what Goldsmith was was hoping for. I just think that for for the way it was shot and the way it was edited and the way it was presented, um, especially once you're going through the ship um, and, and seeing the corridors and, and, and just how mysterious and haunting it is, I think the score needed to match that. And so while it took Goldsmith five minutes to rewrite that cue, um, I think it was far more, far more effective. And, and it, it, it created that atmosphere instantly. Yeah, it still had a slightly romantic feel. A bit, in, but it, I, mean, in, I think the... Well, in hypersleep, like in that hypersleep we, cue. Yes, and hypersleep becomes a little bit... It becomes... The rescored portion is still in the movie a little bit warmer, but again, that theme is completely dropped, where Goldsmith, again, in with the hyperspace, and this is where... Hyperspace, the hypersleep. Uh, this is where you know everybody's waking up, and it's... It's almost like um, Goldsmith was kind of creating a a lullaby, um, and so and 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 I think that once you see the the human characters rising from hypersleep, then you know you get kind of like that warmth and that easiness. It's like, oh, okay, well here they are, everything's all right, and you know, and so that Goldsmith is writing kind of like this lullaby, let's wake up everybody, everything's okay, because we're not really sure why they're waking up. We're thinking, oh, maybe they're close to Earth and and everything is good. And so, you know, and even Goldsmith said the harmonic structure of the cue was like a lullaby. And it's interesting because you can get that same sort of feeling a few years later in Goldsmith's score to Poltergeist. So the biggest change that you're going to hear when we do hear the rescored parts is that you're not going to hear the main theme. The main theme is all over the main title in hypersleep. And it's and it's absolutely beautiful, excellent writing, but it you know, wasn't Goldsmith good was, for the film. It wasn't good for the film, and he was asked to rescore it. And I completely agree with the filmmakers that these cues, yeah, they needed to be rewritten. Yeah. So let's let's go ahead and play these two. 
So, yeah, the thing I, I appreciate about this portion of the score, um, it's beautiful. It really is. It's just, it doesn't work for the film. And we can totally see why it was rewritten, because the atmosphere, I mean, you, you look at the atmosphere of the ship, and we've talked about this a little bit, of how creepy, how um, terrifying it kind of is because it's so alone. It's so quiet. There's so much of the ship. I was astounded how big the ship was compared to the actual shuttle. Right. You know, no, you and, and, you're, and you're right. But and, and what I really also like about it is that I think the filmmakers were even conscious about, hey, we're going to... I mean, the Star Wars ships are are brilliant and beautiful, but we're going to light this thing and we're going to build this thing as if it's, you know, a real spaceship. This thing is there to do a job and it's not beautiful and it It's looks, like square and jetty yeah. and, you know. And the way they lit it too yeah. was, was just like, here's here's a hard light from the sun and that's all you're going to see. And so that adds to the mystery. And I think that's what's so... I mean, I think the size is interesting because it does mimic what George Lucas did in Star Wars. But I also think that making it look, quote unquote, real um, is it really helped um, sell this film as, hey, this is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, so, you know, we Jerry Goldsmith... Um, you know, we had mentioned was asked to rescore these two sequences right off the top. And so we were talking about realism and add, adding a certain amount of atmosphere. And that's exactly what Goldsmith delivered. So, you know, rescoring the main title. And as I said, um, it's way more atmospheric, way more eerie and way more terrifying. There's some great avant-garde writing with the uh, alien effect, which is on a an Indian conch shell, uh, that kind of like low sound right. that you hear. Yes. And um, then, of course, there's echoplexed instruments over kind of pizzicato strings. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a brilliant cue, and and I think it's even more outstanding that it only took Goldsmith five minutes, five of, minutes. of inspiration yeah. to, to write yeah. it. And as much as it's really simple and really, um, I guess, easy for him to come up with, it's still, I think, the most effective version of the of the main title. And he's really good at that. Like Goldsmith was really good about, um, bringing in, uh, you know, being flexible with motifs and main themes and different features on the score to change it, to even have it be its own piece, um, to, to drive the movie forward. I think that's really, uh, brilliant on Goldsmith's part. Yeah, what was I think Goldsmith's thinking was always to give the film something, something you can hold on to, and it was always a main melody. And that was he didn't write light motivic scores all the time. He he did write them, but his idea wasn't to give every character a theme. It was just give the overall film a theme, and then he would write a kind of like a secondary motif that he can play around with as well but he was also very good 
at giving the film its own signature musical voice. And you could always tell it was a Jerry Goldsmith score, but he always added something new that would be, all right, so that is part of this film. Like the Ram's Horn, let's say, or the Mixing Bowls in, in, in Planet of the Apes, although he eventually used them again. But here, you know, Goldsmith is using bizarre, exotic instruments, um, like the didgeridoo, um, he's using the serpent, all those kind of weird sounds. He's using electronics. Um, that's all helping and backing um, his orchestral material. And so he was always, he was a genius that way, just always trying to find something new while also, you know, keeping his, his voice um, there. Like I said, you knew when you heard it, it was definitely a Jerry Goldsmith score. Yeah, and then with, is it, it's hypersleep. Hypersleep, uh, yes. Right, that uh, he had to rescore, and it's it's less romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, be, and is it because, well, there's the lack of that um, solo trumpet? Right. Is that right? Right. Okay. Yeah, that was the big thing. That was the big change. They wanted to get rid of that off the top of the movie. And eventually got rid of it at the end of the movie as well. Um, mm-hmm. But they didn't want to to kind of give you that romantic, warm feeling, that warm, cozy feeling as you're going around the ship or when you're seeing everybody wake up. But this cue, is, this cue essentially is the same cue that he wrote, but it's it's just eliminating that solo trumpet that you heard earlier in that same cue. It's, it's just been jettisoned. And so you still have a cue that's a very soft, warm, and airy, but it's without the theme. And it's a, it's a subtle but effective change that keeps the suspense and mystery of the story that was established um, in the rewrite of the main title. So again, as much as we like to complain about Ridley Scott and, and, and uh, you know, Terry Rowling here, personally, I think they it was were right. It was a good choice. Yeah, it was yeah. definitely a good choice. And I, I love these yeah. two cues and I love how uh how it does present that that atmosphere i think that you would expect from a film of this sort yeah let's go ahead and play those Thank you. 
now we're going to skip kind of to the end. Sort of. Like, with the score, anyway. Uh, because there's some unique cues uh, that are in the, like, in the original score that weren't rescored. And these are kind of different that uh, Goldsmith had wrote. Now, one thing I haven't thought about with, um, like, science fiction scoring uh, is the action word violent. Because uh, these cues, the ending, uh, which includes the cupboard and out the door, really illustrate violent orchestral movements. And I think what makes it stand out is Ripley's intense effort to try to stop Mother from destroying the ship and trying to get off the ship. Yeah, it's um it's it's really kind of angry music. Really angry and it's as you said, yeah, very violent. It's true horror, um, but it's just there's only yeah, there's only one way you can you can really describe it as it is kind of violent. The players are attacking their instruments, very chilling music, and and on top of that, you're getting more kind of this eeriness. But he's Goldsmith is letting his exotic instruments loose, especially the serpent. Very distinct sound you're going to hear in this, in the cupboard cue, and 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 this is this is one of those, and I'm again I'm I'm not sure Jump how many moments. times yeah I'm not sure how many times this happened in films uh, <sighs> back then I don't know I mean it's it's an everyday occurrence now like when you think the movie has ended it really hasn't ended even my son can pick that out, um and he picked that out when he saw uh Alien with me um, last month I showed him Alien and Aliens back to back for the first time and he knew this movie wasn't over when. Uh, when they got into the shuttle. <laughs> um, but, but he probably wasn't expecting the jump scare. No, he knew it was coming, but he didn't, but it, when it hit, he actually did jump and he's like, yeah, that got me. <laughs> and I, and that, you know what? Just kind of like on it a gets tangent. me every time. Yeah. And on a tangent, uh, just quickly, I think having children and introducing them to some of my favorite movies and watching the films uh, for the first time with them and, and kind of watching it through their eyes is an absolutely incredible experience. And my son is not really a, mu- a movie lover. He does not like movies. He likes watching TV and um, you know television shows and series, but he's got an issue with movies. I'm not sure why. But we sat down and I said, hey, you might want to check these out. And he, he really did love them. So, but it was interesting watching him try to figure out, I even asked him, you know, who's going to survive. It was instantly Dallas. <laughs> he had no idea it was going to be Ripley. Um, so that's kind of, yeah. So back to this jump scare, it, it worked. It worked on him. I remember it working on me. It's something that I'm going to say it and somebody else can c- correct me, but I'm pretty sure alien was the one that patented this kind of false. Ending. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, I agree. So, but the thing about this whole sequence that Jerry Goldsmith originally scored is that he was scoring every single instance that the alien was on screen. So 
every time you hear something really, really loud in the cupboard queue, um, Goldsmith is signaling to you that here's the alien. And, um, and whether that was right or wrong, that's up to you. Um, but that's where Jerry, Jerry Goldsmith felt that this was the most terrifying portion of the film. And that finally the, it's very loud. And the alien is again, in the original cut before they cut this all down, the alien was shown quite a bit. So Goldsmith was giving him or it, it's, it's big moment. And so it's really violent. Geiger at his finest. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. And we haven't (laughs) even mentioned him yet. No, um, the design of the aliens and you know, absolutely brilliant. And he's a brilliant, sick, twisted kind of person too. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really loud off the beginning. And then of course, when, you know, Ripley is donning the, the spacesuit, um, everything kind of quiets down until, we but get it doesn't into the... like, that's the thing without the door. They, these are back-to-back right. uh, cues, and it's moments. Like, it's not, it's not like, minutes. It's moments right. of yeah, like, quiet. And then you're like, boom. Yes. All yeah. of a sudden, you're, like, thrown, and you're like, oh, what's going on? Right. This, this can't be it. And it's still incredibly scary because you're – I, again, I remember watching the sequence and I'm like, you're in this very, very small room and you're trapped with this creature that has just completely obliterated your entire crew. And now she has to think like on her feet, literally. I mean, how are you going to get out of this? And I remember watching this going, what is she doing? Like, what is happening? Oh my God. She's going to jettison out of the ship. And I think that was just, and again, that must be, that also is just, opening up a door, you know, the possibility of you getting shot out into space, uh, every, every frightening aspect or, or phobia that anybody could ever have is, is in this sequence, you know, tight quarters, um, you know, just the prospect of, of dying in the most gruesome way possible, the, the terrifying, almost arachnid looking alien. It's this whole sequence is absolutely bananas. Um, and it's just one of the, one of those, great horror film sequences that um, again, I haven't seen the longer cut where the alien is shown more uh, prominently on screen. I think it's um, in the uh, director's cut. It's fantastic. It really is fantastic. And, and again, um, I do appreciate the fact that they limited the, the amount of time the alien was on screen because there is only, I mean, you don't see it too often, but there are a couple of shots where you're like, Ooh, that looks a bit, um, wonky yeah. and yeah. i think it's during lambert's death where there's a mm-hmm. cut and it looks like it's moving in slow motion and it's like oh, yeah it's a really bad shot don't use that but yeah. they did anyway but besides that i think the way that they they hit it and the way they used it and the way they shot it um it's kind of like the jaws effect um yeah show the shark because it's scarier if you don't see it but yeah. um yeah out the door is um it's really, like I said, it's a, it's a crazy action sequence by Goldsmith. And again, some of the best music he has ever written. And, and what was interesting about this part uh, or this unused cue is that when um, Ripley engages the engines and the alien is blown out into space, instead of offering something heroic, you know, Goldsmith just lets the music die down to literally a lone woodwind. 
kind of like with a somber playing of the film's main theme. So it's not like, because so many people have died. Yes, great. She did something heroic, but it's mean, she's the last one with her cat. And so it shouldn't be this big, like, hurrah moment. It's just a horror film for crying out loud. But these two cues, again, some of the best stuff Jerry Goldsmith has ever written. Yeah. So now let's play The Cupboard and Out the Door.
right, so now we're going to look at the rescored parts of these two cues. And I think that with the cupboard, um, it's definitely toned down. It's not as loud, but it's still aggressive. Um, it, it, it's, it's more... Like, it feels like there's less instruments. Yeah. And yet, it still gives you that... It's almost like a hypertension that your body can feel. You know? With right. the actual music. Um, you're... Like, if you're sitting in the theater and you're watching this movie, and it's this scene, the cupboard, and, you know your your hands are clenched <laughs> and you know you're you're trying to figure out what's going on but it's like the the musical notes to this piece were cut down dramatically to where it's not so it's not as much of an assault on your senses true very true no, and 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 that's that's it's a good way of of describing it. Um, it was a conscious decision made by Scott. Again, before we got into the um, the suite that you just heard, um, not signaling the alien's appearance, so that limited Goldsmith as to what he can do and how loud he could get. Um, so, as you said, the score is stripped down. It's still very aggressive, um, about as aggressive as the original cue. Just not as overly violent, and um, but uh, you know, after the loudness of this cue, uh, essentially the the latter half of the cupboard is pretty much identical to what uh, what was written in the original cue. And the funny thing is that all of this 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 violent action material was completely cut, so all that's left is the quieter moment. So for all the trouble that Goldsmith went through, again, not even the re rescore was was used, or or even or half of it wasn't even reused. So um, and the same without the door. Well, and that's, like this yeah. cue, of course, is totally rewritten. Like yes. it's completely different. Yes. Um, and it's very similar to the to the to the cupboard. It's 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 not as edgy, mm-hmm. not as kind of stabby or violent. It's um, the, you know, it's. Huh? But maybe that's what the audience needed. <laughs> oh, and it's po- and it's possible. It it might have just been yeah. way too over the top. Who knows? Yeah. It's still, yeah. you know, the rescore is still very, um, it's very effective. It's, oh yeah, yeah. And that's what um, I was gonna say. It was it's very effective. Yeah, and and the biggest difference, of course, is that now Scott and Rowling um, wanted Jerry Goldsmith to signal. Um, the heroic version of the alien theme when the uh, alien is finally jettisoned out into space for good. Mm-hmm. So this is something that Goldsmith Charles wanted to avoid, gone. right? Yeah, and yep. and that's what he did in his original cue, not wanting to play up the heroics, but here he's forced to. And so, yeah, that's again we were talking. You know, it's obvious, much like the rescore of the main title in Hypersleep is obvious. But um, I think that having an obvious heroic theme here wasn't the right choice. And I think Goldsmith, 
in turn now made the best choice with his original cue. Um, and so then, you know, like when things die down in this, in this cue, uh, there's, um, a different type of ending to the, to the cue where, you know, Ripley's, um, doing the log entry, um, which this cue was then supposed to tie into the, uh, the original ending of the movie. And, uh, but um, what was interesting, and in listening and reading through the liner notes of the uh, the Alien soundtrack, um, expanded by Intrada Records, was that this cue was probably one of the reasons Goldsmith's um, uh, music was so chewed up during this sequence was um, was the fact, and going back to the fact that in the original cut, the Alien was shown more often during this sequence. And so, you know, Goldsmith is attacking you um, as the viewer. Like every time the alien's on, loud music. And so here, um, after seeing the cut with Goldsmith's music, um, Scott and Rowling wanted the alien to remain a bit of a mystery, even at the end of the film. So and what eventually happened was that, and you don't really alien. see all of it, but again, that's, People talk about how the score was chewed up in the movie. Well, remember this out the door cue was written for a much longer sequence, both the original and the rescored. And even though they've rescored it, they are still chopping it down. And only portions of the cue are then used because the film again shortened after the rescoring because they didn't want to show the alien. So just a whole mess, just an entire mess um, <laughs> in post production. Um, but, um, it's, it's just an interesting, it's, it's an interesting exercise hearing the rescore and how different, um, how, how, you know, one composer can attack the same scene in -hmm. different ways. Yeah. So now let's play the cupboard and out the door from the rescore. Thank <laughs> you. 
So now we're going to get into two pieces. Um, what I think is important is the landing. Uh, the landing... Now, the original queue was much longer. Um, and I think even in my notes, and I think it's from the Entrada um, release, that there were some really quite uh, differences with the landing itself. Um, and it really reminds me of what's actually in the movie, you know, um, because in the movie, we're getting John Hurt going to, I can't remember the name of his character in the film. Um, but he goes down, he goes into the ship that's on the planet and uh you know he stumbles upon the uh the eggs and gets the face hugger on him <laughs> and you know the thing about it is that it is actually kind of in a romantic sort of way cuz it's explored that way it is showing the mystery of space, and I think that's what Goldsmith was really trying to do, especially even, you know, as we talked about with the original main title and Hypersleep, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it changes it now with the landing because it's like, it was chopped, uh, wasn't it, as like last minute. Yeah, the whole sequence, this, this cue was supposed to begin, um, there was last minute changes to the edit, and I think that there was, um, there's a portion here where this begins a little bit earlier before they finally decide that they're going to uh, go to the alien planet, mm. and um, I think that's a point where they're, I think they're listening to the transmission. And I think it's a bit redundant lines. in the, in when I think it's, this is a cut scene. Yeah, well, and, I mean, you know, even though it's cut up, and this is uh, uh, probably the highlight of the entire score um, next to the end title that wasn't used, but at least in the film, uh, even though this cue was chopped up, and, I mean, if you look at the notes um, in the Entrada release, I mean, there's stuff tracked from other tracks. Um mm -hmm. You know this this cue comes in, goes out, comes in, goes out. There's about it's throughout 40, the thirty seconds a lot here. Of the movie. Yeah, yeah, but this this specific sequence, even though for how cut it is, for me, I feel like it almost feels complete. Yeah, and um, I'm not sure whether it's because it's a good editing job or not, but to me, it feels like I mean at least we get that grand statement of the alien theme. I think that. In the film as is, this is the perfect place to play it, to introduce the audience to that theme. Because, as you said, Goldsmith had an idea that space had this kind of romantic and mysterious aspect to it. And for having such a big, expansive scene and shot of the, the ship traveling through space and going to the alien planet, I think that finally you got your crew 
working together and going down to this planet that you can afford to have a more romantic theme take over because we still haven't got to the quote unquote scary parts of the of the movie. Oh, yeah. Whereas yeah. the those first two cues of the main title and hypersleep are still very, very creepy. Sets mm-hmm. up the film perfectly. But here again, you can afford to have that expressive main theme, that expressive cue. And it's great to hear the theme fully developed in this track. And it's most definitely as I, I consider it, it's just a standout portion in the film and in, in Goldsmith's score. I mean, the film is great, but I just absolutely love this this standalone sequence of them going to the planet. It's it's great stuff. All right, so let's go ahead and play The Landing, and um, we'll get into, into a couple more things after this.
All right, so now we're going to get into the end title, which, of course, one thing that <laughs> I think frustrates me the most about the score is how the end title is actually, like, the original, or maybe it's not the original, maybe it's because of, uh, you know, the man who would not be named. Uh, <laughs> Our Voldemort in this story is Terry Rowling. <laughs> yeah, he... Uh, <laughs> He used a classical piece of music rather than Goldsmith's actual ending score credit cue. And that's the frustrating part about it. It's like, use the actual composer's music. Yeah, it's, this is, and it's, this is where, where Rawling is, I'm, you know, thinking where I'm better than Goldsmith. I know better than than the composer and and what I put into this film is is better than what Jerry Goldsmith originally wrote. Again, seeing this as a kid, it didn't bother me because I didn't know any better. And I'm pretty sure that most of the general audience out there had no idea and really do have no idea the background of these sort of things. But that's what we're here to do. We're here to let you know that yeah, there was some tomfoolery going on in this film. People were monkeying around with the music, the edit, this and that. And even and it's amazing that this uh, film became a classic. Also, that's and the fact that Goldsmith's score is so um, cherished as well. Yeah, yeah, but, that's even more ridiculous. Yeah, but here, <laughs> here in Rawlings' infinite wisdom. Um, he felt that using a totally unrelated classical piece by Howard Hansen was the answer that he needed for the end of the film. So again, thematically has, it makes no sense. So, so, I mean, when you first hear it, it's when Ripley defeats the monster and then kind of plays through the Ripley's log entry. And, and what's nuts is that again, Ridley Scott had no idea what he wanted. So Rawlings showed this to Scott. And he loved it. So they just kind of left it in the movie. It made no sense. No relation to any of the characters, the story, or Goldsmith's score. And then the piece was used again over the entire end credits. So, you know, Rawling mentioned that Hansen's piece did what Goldsmith's piece couldn't. And <laughs> he said, he, he literally says that Goldsmith's piece just didn't give us that emotional content. What? what yeah i mean are you have you heard what he wrote i mean what's absolutely yeah. bananas as well is that this is a, a staple this was a mm -hmm. staple in goldsmith's repertoire he would play in concerts all the time people yep. knew this piece and as much and look the howard hansen piece is lovely it is yeah. lovely and it's actually a 19 mid 1960s late 1960s recording done by charles gerhardt Mm -hmm. um, again, performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra, who performed the score to Alien. So how ironic is that? Um, <laughs> but uh, it just thematically doesn't connect. And mm -hmm. 
Exactly. And so when you hear, and if you get a chance to get the Alien Blu-ray, it's incredible to watch the film with Goldsmith's originally intended score. Because mm-hmm. this end title just is a, it's a knockout. It's an absolute yeah, it knockout. Is. It is. And just relates back to what he was trying to establish in the beginning of the film, but again, relates to the landing and, 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 and just adds something to the Ripley's character. Just that warmth and nurturing, strong, um, smart character that she was. And it's a beautiful, beautiful end title. One of the best. Yeah, I agree. So now let's play that. Man, don't you just love those stabs at the end? Those those yep. huge chords, like right at the end. Oh I love man, it. so yeah, good. It's great. So it's good. Great. All right, so we've t- discussed a lot of the score this evening or today. Yeah, I should say 
We've yeah. discussed a lot of the score. Um, we've discussed the ins and outs, the battles, the conflicts, the utter drama that was dealt with Terry Rawlings, Ridley Scott, and Jerry Goldsmith. Come on, communicate, people. <laughs> That's the most important lesson here. Man, <laughs> exactly. communicate with your... With your, with with, your composer. As a, as a, yeah, and if you can't, you know, you don't have to talk in musical terms. Mm-hmm. You know, give them some something. Just give them an emotion. Let exactly. them know what you want to feel because they will go off and do their magic. They are good mm-hmm. at this stuff. And so, this is why them. we've discussed this. Yes. You know, because absolutely. in when when we received an amazing 2007 uh, Entrada release. Um, yeah. Took that, a long time for him to get it, though. Oh, yeah. Totally. And, that was pretty, I mean, and that was pretty much because of Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, he didn't want to revisit this stuff at all. I th- Honestly, I think that Entrada was trying to get him to, to either re-record the complete score, because um, I'm not sure whether they knew where the elements were, Um. I mean, and even, you know, Goldsmith crafted his original album with most of the unused material um, because he was so very proud of it. But just the what he had to go through, I don't think he wanted to revisit it. It just hurt him so much. Yeah. But isn't it isn't the fact that one of the things that was it in the film, uh, this cue that we're going to play when we end? Yeah. What is it (laughs) called? It's to sleep. It's called to sleep. Yeah. It's um, about two minutes long, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but it was it, it, it wasn't it was in the film. It was in the film. It's the only yeah. it's the only cue out of the entire film score mm-hmm. that went unscathed. Yeah, um, and uh, <laughs> that was pure Goldsmith. Yeah, it was pure. And so this happens just after high. Ripley can't, where she can't abort the countdown to destroy mm-hmm. the ship. And this and two minutes yells at mother. <laughs> yeah, and this two minutes plays uninterrupted. It's unbelievable mm-hmm. that this is the yeah. cue. This is the only one that they said, "Yep, perfection. Well done, <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith." <laughs> it's bananas, really. And I, I was shocked. Yeah. I was shocked yeah. when I read that. I was like, "This is it." Out of everything, by the way, out of all the rescoring, everything, this is the only one. The only one. Shocking quite shocking yeah it really is it, it it's truly different but it's amazing the the work that the people at Entrano did to get it released like the whole soundtrack yeah. um and i mean you get so much bonus material you oh, get two cds everything. and you've got like a full 30 track score and then you've got the original with some extra bits added in there yeah it's an incredible presentation yeah it's amazing and then the the fact that to sleep is the only cue that was left untouched by terry rawlings (laughs) right and that he's like oh this is perfect jerry you can keep this one (laughs) yeah yeah it's a win for you guys here's here's your two minutes of win yep exactly yeah it's um you know, like the whole alien story is absolutely fan. It's, 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 um, it's so fascinating. 
Um, and I keep saying go go get to that Alien Blu-ray because they have an incredible documentary and everybody's incredibly honest about the way they feel about this. And I'm glad that Taring Rowling is also very honest. I mean, he thought that he knew better than Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith was interviewed for it. And he gives his two cents about how, um, you know, the, the score was created and, and what happened and how he wasn't happy with it. But, you know, Goldsmith has said that this is one of his most elaborate and complex scores of his entire career. And that was due to the fact that it was a sizable orchestra. There was all these exotic instrumentations and, and really it was uh, an unorthodox uh, recording uh, the way they were, they were recording certain instruments. And so, you know, Goldsmith put a lot of thought into this, um, a lot of care and, um, and, and that all comes, you can, you can get, you can get that, that, that sense through Mike uh, Matasino's wonderful liner notes, which, you know, helped me get through this show. There was a lot of information that I shared with you today that comes from that brilliant, um, notes. The liner notes the were amazing. Yeah. And the I tra- love the artwork. Like oh, the, yeah. there's, there's production photos, there's. Uh, pictures of the alien. There's so much to it that people really have to hunt hunt for this score and find it. It's an essential. I mean, it's an essential release. You're a film score mm-hmm. fan. This is one. This is history. This is film score history. Um, it really is something that I'm very proud to have it in my collection. And uh, even if it's even if you're not a fan of it, or you you might listen to it only once or twice, it's just there's a whole wealth of information in here as well that um, you know you can always revisit and, and access because it's it's absolutely incredible and meticulously researched. And but the sound of this album is great. Um, I always liked Eric Tomlinson's recording, um, and of course, uh, this is one of the rare times that Jerry Goldsmith did not conduct his scores. Because for 20th Century Fox at that time, um, they would have their own conductor, Lionel Newman, come in and conduct scores. So I think Lionel Newman also conducted a few other Goldsmith entries, like uh, The Omen 3, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm not sure how Williams went unscathed by conducting Star Wars. Um, (laughs) But maybe it was in his contract. But anyway, um, yeah, the whole package, this is... I mean, fans, fans, film score fans since 1979 had been asking this for, for the longest time. And so bravo to the people at Entrada back in 2007 for, for making this available. So it's Roger Feigelson, Douglas Fake, along with the late Nick Redman, Mike Mattesino, the whole production crew, everybody involved. Great, great, great release of, of a classic score that was just, uh, they didn't show it any respect. Mm-mm. Exactly. So, Eric, I'd like to thank you for being on Soundtrack Alley today. Thank you very much for having me. Seriously, let, thanks for letting me bring this one to you. Oh, yeah. You're bringing the films this to me, but I'm like, amazing. we got to talk about Alien. We have yep. to talk about Alien. Yep. So. And I'd also like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Uh, you can find his work at xanderscores.com. Eric, every single time we're on we have an amazing time discussing a good movie. Yeah. Guess what we get to talk about next time. Oh, don't tease me. Let me know. Jurassic Park. Oh, yes. Yep. Oh, man, we're going to have some fun. Definitely going to have some fun. That's going to be a blast. We're going to enjoy that. Um, You can find Soundtrack Alley, uh, the archive episodes. Um, And this is specifically for a few people that have wondered about why on 
my current feed that I that they they're like, well, I haven't heard Alexander Shebel's intro, and I it's because I've been playing older shows, um, and it was before Alexander Shebel was uh, collaborating with me, and we I had interviewed him, and one of the first shows on my feed is Alexander Shebel's interview. And so how he came up with the theme and everything. So that's, you know, all the archive is through anchor.fm. Um, of course, it's on iTunes or, well, Apple Music or Apple Podcasts and a plethora of different places you can find the archive. But mostly, you need to go to Cinematic Sound Radio uh, at cinematicsound.net uh, to find the link. Uh, for that archive programming. And, of course, you can uh, check out all the other programs through Cinematic Sound Radio, uh, including my other show, The Anime Spectacular. Um, I've got some exciting things in the work for that. And, Eric, do you have any lasting thoughts before we close with To Sleep? No, this is this is a blast, and as I think I said on the other two episodes on cinematic sound radio kingdom of crystal skulls and and sneakers i i'm just so happy to and batman returns and batman returns that's right it gets <laughs> get a chance to to just explore these films a little bit more deeper i mean i have a lot to say anyway as a host of my own programs but to go into the deep dive of a single movie this is this is a lot of fun and you know you're talking about your archive we've had some amazing chats over oh, yeah. the years. Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. Uh, Star, Star Trek. Trek. Yeah. Yep. So, but we're still going I'm, on that. I'm super excited to maybe com- continue the Alien series. And, oh, yeah. uh, but Jurassic Park is, that's going to be a lot of fun. That is oh, yeah. definitely going to be a lot of fun because, like Alien, that was a, a moment for me that changed everything. Yeah. Um, and we'll you know, discuss it's those, that. It's, it's one of those films where you're like, Man, I remember exactly where I was and exactly how yep. I felt. Me too. So, looking forward to it. Yeah, so let's close with Jerry Goldsmith's To Sleep. And until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>